I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. I love them all. I, I've never I've never made a grain elevator I didn't like. They're just different. Each one is different. Each one's unique. They have their own personalities. And, and yeah. man, it's just, the people are great. It, it's just it's just cool getting to go around all these different places. They're just all different. And it's just, it's what makes our job fun. My guest on this episode is Scott Hansen. Scott is a lifelong resident of Western Iowa and a lifelong participant in the grain business one way or another, starting growing up in a family business and then since the 90s working here at White Commercial. Uh, Scott was one of my early mentors in the industry and whether he wanted to or not, he received the job of dragging me around to grain elevators and grain elevator meetings and that's a debt I will never be able to repay him, but I'm certainly grateful and I know I'm not the only one who's been helped tremendously by Scott over the years. Hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, Scott Hansen, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Phil. Me too. Hey, let's start from the beginning, grain-wise. Um, you came from a family grain business. It's been 30-plus years since you did that, but uh, how did that go? You can't, You grew up in the business, right? Literally grew up in the business. Um, my grandfather started the business in 1948 with a guy by the name of Max Bates, who actually owned a seat on the Kansas City Board of Trade at that time. And uh, yeah, my dad and my uncle bought it for my grandfather, and I worked there until 1991 when I had the opportunity to come work with some another great set of people. So it, uh, it was quite an experience growing up in the grain industry through that time, um, 70s and 80s. It was a little different then. <laughs> you, you, when you were driving truck, you didn't have e-logs? Uh, uh, no. Um, our biggest challenge we had was being able to get the truck going fast enough with both windows down to get to 245 air conditioning. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it, and it's funny. Um I get around some producers doing farmers meetings for different customers of ours. And um, these guys talk about the good old days farming and they'll say things like, yeah, like when we used to shell corn and things. And I remember my brother and I driving straight truck to the country when I was 13 and we would go out and we would, we would drive the first truck out and then spend all day in the corn crib, shoveling ear corn into the sheller mm. uh, and getting stung by uh wasps and chasing rats so it was it was a little different then maybe not as good of old days as people remember well my favorite saying when people talk about that is if, if you're talking about that time you're those are a whole different set of old days than i'm thinking. <laughs> <Not necessarily good>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and, and, and it was uh i gotta share one funny story i had my roommate from college came home with me one time on a Saturday, and my dad said, hey, uh, I need you to do me a favor tomorrow morning. Um, he says, I need you to, to help shuttle trucks out to the corn sheller and maybe stick around out there while they're getting set up and stuff. And my roommate from college, who was an Air Force brat and never really been on a farm ever, and uh, I remember him riding out to me and asking why there was uh, duct tape around the gear shift on the truck. I said, you'll see. So we get out of the truck at the corn sheller and I start taping my pant legs mm. around my ankles. And he says, what are you doing that for? I said, well, I don't know about you, but I don't want rats running up my pant leg. And he thought the whole thing was a joke. About 30 seconds later, um, he had been over by the corn crib and comes walking back and says, uh, hey, uh, where'd you put that duct tape? <laughs> 
He said, I just saw the biggest rat I have ever seen in my life. And it was like a, it was like a big mouse more than a rat, <laughs> but it was funny. Holy smokes. What was, uh, you're over there in West Central Iowa. I think most people listening to this will know that, but just in the, just in case, what, what was corn and soybean yield like back then? Oh man, when I started out, you were looking 120, 125 bushels an acre for corn and some of the really good guys would get 30, 35 bushel an acre on beans at the time. And the weather had to be perfect for that to happen, huh? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, you know, that, that people talk now about drought and what happens and what a crop failure really is. Well, I know there's places in this world that get shut out, but around here, we always thought if, if the weather turned really bad, you'd get maybe half of a crop. So you might get 60 bushel corn and 15 bushel beans. Uh, but now, of course, it's a little different. Um, you have some of the guys got 250 to 260 on their average yields on corn and uh, beans now, a lot of guys are getting it in the upper 60s, lower 70s. And uh, a short crop, a bad crop around here now is about three-fourths of expected yield. I mean, it's just amazing what the technology and the seed's done. Yeah, I'm not uh, any kind of agronomist or or producing expert, but I just in my time in the business, the the fear, I don't know if the, I don't, that's not the right way to say it the the actual impact of poor weather seems to be a lot less than it was 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. You know that and and it it is strictly a genetic thing. Um yeah. you know, some of these varieties of corn they've got now get by on about 40 to 50% of the amount of moisture that the old numbers used to. Um you know, it's just amazing how much better things have gotten from a yield standpoint, but when you look at what the demand is for our crops. I mean, it, it takes that. Yeah. So when you um, grew up in the business, 13 years old, driving trucks and so on, and then eventually, of course, you went off to college at Drake. And yep. did you get to be there at college or did you have to come home and help with stuff all the time? Or did you want to come home and help with stuff? How did that work? Um, you know, if they needed me at home, I came home. Um, but my dad said, I, I want you to go experience college and that doesn't mean coming home every weekend. And, um, which, uh, looking back on it may not have been the best choice. I, I might've spent a little too much time enjoying college. <laughs> um, I, I used to tell people that my, my major was economics and my minors minor was Peggy's, which by the way, is not my wife. Now, um, it was a bar named Peggy's. And oh, okay. I spent a lot of time there um, studying with my management professor, actually, used to take us over there. So it was kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I went to school at Drake, you know, and, and my major was economics and um, stayed there for three years and did a little stuff at Iowa State as well, but um, never graduated with a degree. Um, uh, when they started telling me I had to take all this stuff that I didn't really want to take, um, uh, ancient Greek and Roman history and um, the uh, history of economics during the medieval times, um, I said, I'm, I'm out of here because um, I wanted to go back and work. I, I came to the realization that I wanted to go back to work at the elevator, and that's what I did, and spent a couple years driving trucks before I went into the uh, kicking and screaming into the office. So how old were you when that happened? Um, let's say around 24, I believe. Okay. Yeah. 24 years old. Before we get, before we get off of the, uh, the college thing, I I've heard from you a few times, a story about coming home maybe for a weekend or over the summer with a hairstyle that your dad didn't care for? Um, <laughs> well, man. Oh, dirty laundry. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, um, probably not many people, the people that listen to podcasts are going to understand this maybe, but they might. Um, I went to college in the seventies and 
we had long hair in the 70s and I had over the course of a year let my hair grow out and it was in the middle of my back and came home for the summer and uh got there on Friday night and my dad says um so you're coming to work tomorrow yeah says um you need to get that haircut before you come to work tomorrow. And I said, Don, don't worry about it. I've got some hair bands. I'm going to stick it down inside my T-shirt. It'll be away from the equipment. It'll be just fine. Really think you need to get that haircut before you come to work. Well, long story short, I woke up the next morning um, and went to take a shower and realized in the shower in the process of washing my hair that there was about a foot of it missing on the back side <laughs> and uh, walked upstairs and um, evidently well I'd been out the, the, the story is I was out the night before with some of my friends and didn't realize what had happened and my dad cut my ponytail off in the middle of the night um, so I walked up to the breakfast table he's sitting there he says uh, gonna get that hair finished up today uh yeah i'll call and make an appointment first thing for sure but yes it was uh <laughs> uh you know my dad had certain ways i just thank god i didn't get an earring <laughs> no tell him what would happen oh i'm pretty sure i know what would have happened it wouldn't have been good blood would have been involved for sure I, I never did quite get my uh hair grown out but as you know i've got some some hair related dirty laundry of my own but my, my dad always told me that if I came home with an earring, I better have a skirt to match. So I, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, jewelry that involved perforate, perforating the body and uh, tattoos were something that was not big in the Hanson world. So you're, you're 24, 23 and, and uh, you, you get asked or told you're going into the office or how did that come? How did that go? Yeah, well, it was real interesting. I, my cousin, I was parked. I just got done parking my semi. And my cousin told me, he says, yeah, your dad wants to see you in the office. And I said, uh, what for? You know, usually that meant I had done something wrong. Mm. Anyway, he says, no, no. He says, uh, he's going to ask you to come in the office. He asked me and I didn't want to go. I said, oh, okay. So you're not going. He said, no. He says, so he wants to see you now. I said, well, I'm not going either. He says, okay, well, good luck. And I walk into the office and he starts telling me that I'm going to start work on Monday in the office and um, helping him out because we were growing and he needed help in the office. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to keep driving truck. I enjoy doing that. And he says, no, you're coming in the office on Monday. And I said, well, you gave Mike a choice. And he says, um, oh, I'm sorry. You thought this was an option. <laughs> <laughs> so yes that's what i alluded to kicking and screaming i was i was not excited about it at first but um it, it's become obvious to me looking back that that's probably one of the biggest watershed moments in my life probably was was coming back into that office and starting out doing settlement sheets and uh quote unquote merchandising grain which in our world then that meant buying corn from a farmer and turning around and selling a truckload lots to Cargill, you know, immediately. So it was, it was not really merchandising. So you, you guys weren't speculators in terms of building big positions, but you obviously weren't basis traders either. Not intentionally. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, every, you know, it's like every place, every once in a while stuff happens and you get out of whack a little bit, but no, we did not. Um, and, and we really didn't have the space because at that time, uh, when I came in the office, we still had three-fourths of our space was full with government storage corn uh, from the, from the long-term reserve program. So we didn't really have space or the time with that space to, to really um, merchandise it per se. We had, to, we had to get rid of it and keep them moving because we didn't have a lot of open space. When did that start to change? Well, let's see, would have been, um, I think it's 83 or 84 when the Notorious Pick program came out. 
Um, that's where the government paid people not to raise corn in these certificates. And, uh, oh man, what a nightmare for elevators. We had to, they would bring us in these, these uh, certificates that would be worth X number of bushels or X number of dollars. And um, then there was a market that traded on those in percentage terms, like 103% of value or whatever, depending on demand. And then you would use those bush, those certificates to buy corn from commodity credit in Kansas City. And it was, uh, well, you could just about do a whole podcast on that process because it was painstakingly laborious, to say the least. Um, That's surprising considering it was the government. Oh, yeah, totally shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, we're here from the government. We're here to help. It's yeah. the worst words you can hear. But it just... Uh, you know, it was a different world back then. And and um, like I said, we had about a million two space at the time, probably a little over that. And probably, like I said, 75% of that was government storage. So um, when, when they finally, over time, wound up getting out of the grain storage business, which the whole premise behind it was that if you stored grain and kept it off the market, prices would go up. But when you had... At that time, they had in, in the long-term reserve program, they probably had 50% of one year's use wrapped up in the reserve program. So even if there was a short crop, there was still plenty of corn around. Um, so it's kind of hard for prices to go up, right? Only, yeah. only the government could come up with a program that would say, we know that the proper way to get prices to come up is take a big pile of corn and make it bigger. And that's going to help prices. It doesn't work that way. So it was it was a mess. But we finally got through all that. And that's that's actually where we had to learn how to merchandise because now all of a sudden we had all that space uh -huh. that we had to do something with. So that's that's what led us to white commercial and as a customer. And uh what was that what was that process like? This this so this would have been the mid mid to end of the eighties when yeah that transition was happening and, and how did how did you run into white commercial and so on? Well, that was also a painful process because not the joining white commercial part, but the part of, of getting to there. Um, we probably, I went to at least work, went to workshops with probably three or four other companies. Um, before I finally went to a white commercial meeting. And it was, quite honestly, it was painful because there was all these people that would put on these meetings that there seemed to me like their sole objective was to let me know how smart they were and how dumb I was. Hmm. And so. well, and I mean, they never asked me, they would always tell me that they could help me how to have merchandise my elevator, but they never asked me once about my elevator at all. Not how much space I had. They, I mean, they just, started off talking about how you should hedge grain. And it's like, that wasn't really clicking for me. And then I happened to go to a meeting um, with Phil Martin and Don White that had put on, I believe it was in Denison, Iowa. John Werner was there juggling tennis balls. And, and I can't even quite remember the context of it, but it was, it was hilarious. Because he was juggling the tennis balls, and it was like I, it was such, it was such on target because it, that's how I felt most of the time. It was like I got all these balls flying around in the air, and and I just couldn't really grasp the one I really needed to that was going to make the difference that needed to be made for our elevator. So I grabbed it, and uh, and then I also remember Mister White walking around the room with no shoes on, and bare feet. <laughs> And it was like February. Everybody else got their boots on for the snow outside and stuff. And he's like, he says, and grain has no price. And that, <laughs> I initially thought, okay, maybe this isn't the best place for me. But John saved it with these tennis balls, I guess. Is a good way to say. <laughs> yeah, so uh, signed up. And, and that was funny because Phil Martin sent me the box and he was going to go uh, come and install me as a new customer and and he brought richard lewis with him 
to show show Richard how it was done. And when Phil got there, I had all the uh, account papers done. I had my basis charts done, and I had already done my first plan, uh, merchandising plan, before they got there. And and I remember Phil Martin turning to Richard and going, "This isn't how it usually goes." <laughs> <laughs> Because basically, I'd done everything that we were doing in installs at the time, right? So, um, well, forty years later, it's still not how it goes most of the time. Yeah, that's true. That's well, and it's kind of like uh, I was talking with our new uh, new guy, Michael Cade, the other day. It was like, um, I said, "There is no usual. You you'll always continuously be surprised in this business." So you you. Uh... Became a white commercial customer, or, or your Hanson Feed and Grain did anyway. Yeah, and and uh, somehow you ended up being an employee. So I, what was how'd that go? Well, you know, um, best way to put it is just real simple. In every family business, there comes a time where things happen, and I'm just going to leave it at that. But. Um, it just goes to be show that you need to be careful what you say, because I just said something to John. I said that, you know, for two cents, I'd be out of here tomorrow. And basically that led to a trip down to see Don and John and spent a couple of days with them. And it was also interesting because it was about, uh, I think at that point, if I remember correctly, it would have been six or eight weeks before I was going to get married. Oh, wow. And uh, I just remember coming home and from the, from being down with Don and John. And I said uh, to my, my fiance, wife now, Peggy, I said, uh, so we got a few things to talk about. She goes, well, you're going to take the job. And I said, uh, what are you talking about? She goes, well, I know all about the offer because Mr. White called me yesterday. Oh, no kidding. Well, I was on the plane on the way home. Mr. White called her and told her what it was going to entail and wanted her to make sure that if she had any questions that she asked him about what I was going to be doing and when and how much time I'd be gone and all that stuff. And it was just like, I asked Peggy, I said, well, I guess you know everything. What do you, what, what do you think? And she goes, well, your dad and I were talking. We think it's a great idea. And, and I said, well, what's dad know about he oh he called him too oh no kidding <laughs> so you know they you know but it was it was really good i mean it 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 was the right thing at the right time um i looked back on it and you know i i've told you this before phil that and i've shared it with a lot of people actually i guess that um you know there's very few people in this world that get a chance to find a job that they wake up every morning and just say, holy smokes, I can't believe I get to do this today. I mean, and and by the way, they're actually going to pay me to do this. I mean, if I didn't need the money, I would do it for free. Um, It's, it's just that kind of rewarding uh, work that, I mean, holy smokes, the people we get to work with are, are we're so privileged. We get the best of both worlds. We get to meet all these great people in the elevator business all over the country. We get to meet their customers who are the salt of the earth people. Some of my favorite people in the world just to sit down and, and shoot the crud with, you know, it's just like, they're great folks, just the best people in the world. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to explain to people that are in other industries, the quality of people that we get to work with. It's, I don't know any better, frankly, it's all I've ever done, but, but uh, I don't think everyone is so lucky. Well, that's for sure. And, and that's one thing that, that with, with my kids that I always told them, I said, look, you know, you know, when they were young, they would talk about, well, I need to, to make money and all this stuff. And I said, well, look, first thing you need to do is you need to find it something that you love to do. And if you love to do something and you get really good at it, the chances are pretty good. You're going to get rewarded. 
Now you may choose a profession like my oldest daughter is a teacher. Mm-hmm. Not exactly the profession you want to go into if you want to make a lot of money. But she also loves her job. And mm-hmm. she's been doing that for eight years and very, very good at it. And, and the same way with the youngest. It, it's just, you know, I, I think that's the best thing about working with the people that we do is that, it, I mean, it, you, it merely makes the day go pretty fast. I mean, there's a lot of days I'm sitting in my office here and I'm talking to customers. Next thing I know, it's 3.30, 4 o'clock. It's like, where did the day go? Mm-hmm. It's just so much fun. Well, you brought up your your girls, and um, this is a. I have a lot of questions about <laughs> about being a girl dad because I'm one, as you know. I'm I'm a, I'm behind you in the time curve, uh, but you're you're the father of two grown daughters, and as of recently, you are father-in-law to two young men, and uh, I, I'm very curious about that transition. So I, I guess, oh. first of all, I'd like to know just in general, outside of the getting married part, uh, I'd like to know what, just in general, how you feel about being a girl dad. And and then I'd like to hear about uh, the transition from being the man in their life to being maybe the second man in their life and how that, how that's worked out for you. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's a couple things that 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 came as a surprise to me just in fatherhood in general. Mm-hmm. Um, number one was the transition from when they're little, like the the baby toddler stage, and then once they start getting into school, how you, they transition from needing you all the time to you're lucky if you get a hug. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's that period of time where, and I think this is for both boys and girls, there's a period of time where you as the parent become very stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least, you, oh, dad, you're so dumb. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I heard that many, many, many times in my life. Um, or dad, do you have to say things like that? You know, um, but you know, the the good news is coming out the other side is I think it begins usually when they start college. And then from there on, as they get older, it gets much, much better that um, you become a lot smarter all of a sudden. And they value your opinions about things. And, and it's being a dad to two girls is is very interesting. Um I, I, one story I got to share is that the, the gal of that I was dating when I was in high school, her mother used to run the dry cleaning store right across the street from my office. And this was probably 15 years ago. I was taking some dry cleaning in that I needed done and I was picking up some other and picked it up and I started to walk out the store and she goes, Scott, I just want you to know that I think it's so great that you have two girls. I was like, oh, thanks, Helen. And I walked, started across the street and I turned around and walked back and said, Helen, what did you mean by that? She goes, I mean that it's great that of all people, you should have two girls. <laughs> and, and I don't know what I had done, but anyway, she thought it was very funny. But <laughs> I personally... And of course, I'm sure you feel the same way, Phil. It's like, there's no greater job in the world to be daddy to two girls, except maybe to be the husband of a super fantastic wife, like you and I both have the privilege to be. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, my girls that, it's been a very interesting ride just for the simple fact that um, my wife, in addition to being a fifth grade teacher, of 34 years now um she was a high school softball coach for 29 um both of my girls played um high school softball at all sports actually uh but softball was their thing they actually both went on and played at a 
D3 school, uh, Buena Vista University in Storm Lake, Iowa, in college. So um, that that has been an interesting thing as well, just watching their maturity and how the sports have a way of helping kids mature. Um, my youngest daughter, Brooke, actually wound up staying on for two years while she worked on her MBA um, as the assistant softball coach at BV. Um, so it, you know, softball has been a big part of our life and it, it's really kind of cool. The lessons that you learn and how you watch them interact with kids and how they play. And, you know, um, I missed a lot of games over the years, but, um, I also got to see the good times too. So it's good. Yeah. Softball is a, a huge part, obviously of your whole family's life. Um, and I'm curious, I, my daughter, was more inclined toward music than sports. And so we, we did our, our version of traveling around uh, all those different events. I wonder in your case, was it, um, is softball one of those things where it, it doesn't feel like work to you? Um, well, it was <laughs> in the beginning. I have to admit that come totally clean. Um, the last few years, that I was working at the elevator here in town um, before Peggy and I got married, I was actually the assistant baseball coach and uh, did some of that for like three years, I believe. Um, and it was very hard adjustment to softball because that softball baseball is better. Well, I didn't realize yeah. how better softball was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man, you get done in half the time. Um, it's more exciting. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's really fun. It's really fun, but it, it, it was a lot of work being married to the coach, which meant I had to do a lot of the work around the field. We had to help get the field ready, that kind of stuff. Um, that's when I was there. Um, at the same time, I mean, I started umpiring a baseball in 76 softball in 77 and I umpired softball up until about five years ago. So I mean, I, I did a lot of that over the years too. So that was, you know, I, I love the game. Actually, I just love the kids because somebody needs to do it. Nobody wants to do it, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's just, it's not work. It's just fun. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really valuable, we, we did a little bit of sports in my household, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a central focus, but it turns out that as you get older, when you're trying to qualify for things in a school, whether it's a, whether it's a music program or a sports program or anything else, that's a serious pursuit that has to be limited to a certain number of people. You learn a lot of important life lessons because really uh, maybe when kids are really little, it's everybody, everybody has a good experience and everybody gets a chance to play. And then as you move up, in age brackets and get more serious. It's, it's a meritocracy. And it turns out that the people who work the hardest and are the most committed and build the most skills get to be a part of that. And the ones who don't maybe get to be a part of it in a practice team or bench role, or maybe don't, don't make the team at all, which, which is not, um, not fun when it happens to you, but it's a, it's a tremendous life lesson about applying yourself and also a tremendous sense of accomplishment for yeah. uh for, for the kids who are willing to put in the work I, I think you know my daughter's case she had to uh when she got into high school she had to audition for the various music groups she was in and, and you weren't guaranteed a spot at all i mean i remember the the uh, choir teacher who was a really nice guy and became a good friend of our family uh his statement was i can't let people be in the choir because they're nice girls. They have to be good at singing. Yeah, they have to be good at singing and they have to be willing yeah. to, to go through the stress of an audition process and, and take the risk that they won't be accepted because either they don't have the talent or didn't work hard enough or weren't prepared. Uh, I, I, think, um, I think there's a lot of important things that kids learn from being involved in that that are bigger yeah. than bigger than the thing they're doing even though the thing they're doing is also really important it, that's really true um you know and, and especially with having when you're the when you're the daughter of the coach oh sure yeah um 
a lot of people looking from the outside in say, oh, well, she's getting, the, I mean, like my oldest daughter started when she was an eighth grader mm-hmm. at catcher, which is really unusual, but it's because she was that good. Yep. Um, and a lot of people look back at it and it's like, well, you know, that's not fair. And it's like, then they, they see their abilities on the field and it's like, holy smokes, how could you set her out this today for this game? Um, she needs rest. Well, we need her in the, in, in the game and it's, it's hard. It's just a different level, but so it's almost when, and, and Peggy, I think would be the first person to say that it's, it's not that you have a higher expectation for your kids, but it's like to get in there, you, it's maybe the buyers unfairly a little too highly set. Um, yeah. But the girls, it's amazing how resilient they've been and are. I mean, kids, my daughters are, are as Natasha is for you. That's the light of my life. And uh, it's, it's uh, all I can say is about my daughter. Daughters are, I'm fun grandpa waiting patiently. Um, <laughs> so. That's perfect. Well, so you've made the transition, but I, I do want to hear your thoughts just briefly on, on uh, becoming a father-in-law and, and oh. how, how, how you manage that transition. Uh, well, my youngest daughter was married um, this last September mm-hmm. and um, her husband benefited from all the missteps that I made with Brittany's <laughs> husband, Cam. <laughs> um you know me well enough to know that I have a hard time speaking seriously sometimes. And so I like to joke. Well, first of all, I have to say that my girls, unsurprisingly to me, both picked out great men to be with. Um, They both played baseball at at Buena Vista as well. So they're very athletic and um, you know, the baseball and softball teams at colleges kind of spend time together just because of the nature of the beast. And, mm-hmm. um, so they, they met these guys and both very, very outstanding young men. Um, the, but when, uh, Cam and Brittany were at our house and Brittany was in the shower and Peggy and I were sitting at our counter eating breakfast and and uh cam said while britney's in the shower i have something to ask you to and um i'm like going to myself oh crap oh crap oh crap oh crap (laughs) not i'm reading the sunday paper yeah and uh he says i would want to know how you would feel about having me for a son-in-law and as only I could do, this tender moment, I screw it up by saying, I look up at him out of the paper and say, nope. And I go back to reading the paper. <laughs> and promptly, my wife hauls off and hits me in the shoulder just about as hard as she can and says, Scott Andrew. And I said, okay. And I closed the paper and I set it aside and I said, look. Cam, I apologize for that, but um, here's the thing, and I, I, this goes to speaking how you, how I kind of attempted to make the transition. I said, Cam, um, I got to give a little backstory here. Um, Cam lost his father when the kids were uh, freshmen in college, I believe, freshmen or sophomores in college. So he and I developed a, a really good relationship. Um just some of the stuff that we would talk about um, him being without his dad. And uh, so I said, Cam, uh, here's the thing. If you're asking me if I could, you can marry my daughter. The answer is hundred percent without a doubt. Yes. I think that would be wonderful. We would love to have you as part of the family, but if I didn't think that you are a good enough person for you to be considered my son, you're sure as hell not going to matter my daughter. 
marry my daughter. So I told him, I said, because I, I view you the way I view you. I want you to be, I'm, I will not consider you a son-in-law. You are my son. And that's the way it is. If, if you can accept that, then you can be part of the family. And then the tears started for everybody. And it was like, because it, that's the way it's been. And, and I told Peyton the same thing. Um, the, the transition, um, and, and I know why you're wanting to ask this, because someday it's going to happen to you too. Um, yep, yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and the reality of it is that when you look at your daughter and she shows you and you can see the love in her eyes and the way she feels about that young man, you got to trust her feelings and her, her judgment. And if as hard as it can be as a dad to say, there's going to be another guy in my girl's life, you have to step aside and do that. It doesn't mean that they love you less. It just means they have somebody else they love in a different way. And uh, that's okay. That's okay. It, I'm not saying that's easy. That's much easier said. Than <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I will tell you that, that, um, you know, it's just been a, a very, very, very great experience. The boys, um, they fit right in our, to our family. We're very sports oriented, of course. And, um, you know, it's, it's very fun. Everything is a competition and it, it, it in a fun way. And, uh, it just makes it really great. It, it's, it, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, with the addition of the two boys, the family's even better. And like I said before, there's only one way the family could get even better, and I'm waiting patiently. <laughs> I know the time will come, and I and the kids are ready, and that's the way it should be. But just saying, fun grandpa, waiting patiently. <laughs> well, Perfect. maybe not patiently, but I am waiting. But that's okay. That's uh, I think the key for me there was that that you talked about. Uh, trusting their judgment and their choice. And I, for me, one of the very gratifying things about being the father of an adult is that I feel like we put a lot of work in uh, to make her not only her own person, but a person who is, who is thoughtful and, and uh, considers the big picture and as a problem solver. And it's been really gratifying to watch her turn from a child into a grown-up who it, who does she's still a kid but she does display some of those things that we hoped that we could help her uh, help her have as a person so i, I am hopeful <laughs> that, yeah. that when that when the time comes to make that choice all that stuff comes into play and i'm able to to uh well i'm not gonna have any choice but i, I hope that i can enthusiastically grab onto the thing the way you have as I do well, very much hope that all I can tell you is this Bill that there does come a point in time where and and I mean we've never really talked uh philosophically about religion and things but you know I'm a church goer but I I will say that after my kids got into and out of college and they started where we started looking at this boyfriend uh, the potential spouse that all of a sudden I started believing a lot more <laughs> in the higher power. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that makes sense. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, I know you're up there. I know you're taking good care of us. You've done a really great job so far, but I'm going to need a little extra right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well said. Hey, uh, it's, circling back to softball briefly you 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 obviously your whole family is very involved and and you've been umpiring for golly i think based on your timeline there we've we're 40 years in if or more oh yeah more i guess well, quite, a, quite a bit more up until five years ago yes yeah so yeah about so then if you started in the mid 70s and you went up to five years ago you're you're anyway in in the somewhere around 40 years in and right. um and uh, I just heard this morning about, about a pretty special event at the culmination of all that umpiring that I think that our audience deserves to hear about. Well, um, yeah, I, 
I found out on, I guess, actually Friday, more details today. But uh, yeah, I just found out that in July, I'm going to be inducted into the Iowa Softball Umpires Hall of Fame um, right after the state tournament. Um, it's a, it's the, the, the Iowa softball coaches, the Iowa coaches associations is the one that has the, the, uh, that runs it. And they're the ones that put people in. And, uh, so it's, it's really gratifying to me because it's the coaches that, that put the umpires in. It's not yeah. other. And that's, that means a lot to me that, that, that's amazing. Do you think there's anybody in that group of coaches that you've thrown out of a game before? Um, well, I can tell you this, that in my whole career, I only threw two coaches out. Okay. Um, and I, I always had this feeling and, and opinion that if I let it get to the point where I have to throw a coach out, I haven't done my job. Um, I was not a confrontational umpire. I didn't like to argue with coaches. I would back to, as one guy told me one time, he said, I wish you would just yell back at me. <laughs> he said, you always, you always listen to me rant. And then you say in a very quiet voice, coach, I understand, but you're wrong. That's not the rule. Here's the rule. And I would talk and, and the one guy said, he says, I know for a fact, the matter you are at me, the quieter you get. And it's hard for me to you for me to hear you. And uh, I said, well, that's by design. I just trying to take it down a notch here. And, but yeah, um, no, there's, there's nobody in there that I, I have thrown out of a game, but I'm sure there were some that, that had some, differences of opinion with me on a few things but well if you don't have any of that you're probably not doing the job very well well That's... yeah yeah at, you know it's as i tell um, our our i tell our superintendent at the school repeatedly he says i feel like i've got a lot of people that are mad at me i said well you show me a superintendent that's not got a few people mad at him he's probably not <laughs> doing his job yeah so uh, speaking of superintendents you've also spent quite a number of years on school boards. I don't know if it's been the same one the whole time or, or different ones, but that's what, what brought you into that kind of service and kept you there so long? Oh, see, that's what happens when you complain to people. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I had a neighbor that, that um, Peggy and I had been married. Um, let's see, I got to do the math on this. Um. Peggy and I had been married about four or five years, six years, maybe six years. And uh, Brittany had just been born. And I was complaining to my neighbor down the street who was on the school board about the fact that he had missed five school board meetings in the row. And the last meeting he was at, he, he had, done something that I really disagreed with. And he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll resign if you'll take my spot. Mm. And I went home and I talked about it in my, with Peggy and she says, I think you should do it. Well, 24 years later, I'm still on the school board. Um, you know, that's one of those things that that that's truly a service thing. In Iowa, you do not get paid to be on the school board. Okay. Zero pay, no per meeting or anything like that. You do it. I like to tell people you do it for all the outstanding recognition <laughs> and uh, support you get from the people. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, sure. I tell new school board members, it's always great. Once you make a decision on something, you always know how people are going to feel. And they're like, what do you mean? You already know how they're going to feel. I said, yeah, somebody's going to be really happy and somebody's going to be really sad. And they're going to let you know about it. Um, and oh, by the way, it'll be the people that are mad at you that are going to get a hold of you, not the people that are happy because they never yeah. see anything. Um, yeah. But 
you know, and I, I think you've probably heard me say this before. Everybody goes, why on earth would you put yourself through that? Well, number one, it's important. I mean, how much, how many more things in your life could be more important than helping the, the next generation learn and, and making sure that they have a high quality school with high quality teachers and, and good facilities to, to be in. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will say that, that there is a payday involved being on the school board and it happens once a year, usually in May. Um, that's graduation, getting to hand kids their diplomas. Uh. Um, this year was a special one. Um, a kid by the name of Colin that goes to our church. Um, he was a twin. His older brother graduated a year ago. Colin has had a lot of special needs. Um, he's had some physical issues, um, numerous surgeries over the years. Um, you know, just a, but a very special kid. And he's always been, I call him my church buddy because he always comes up to me at church and says, Hey, crazy, how you doing? <laughs> um, and I got to give him his diploma this year. And between him and his mom and dad and I, I don't know who had more tears flowing when that kid walked across the stage. Um, it's, it's just, I said, told Peggy, I said, when I got home, I said, man, that was a great payday today. Cause it's just, it's, it's that rewarding when you get to do that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a rush for me. It's so part of service, right? You mean, yeah, absolutely. Of course it is. Especially if, uh, especially if it's an unpaid job, I think around here, I think maybe we elect them around here and they, I'm, I'm quite sure they get paid, but I don't know. I don't know a lot about it to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I know there are states that pay and, and I mean, it, when I, here's something I'll tell you about our industry that we work in. This mm -hmm. is about the, this is going to the people that work in our industry. Yeah. Um, you, I, you may not be surprised. You probably wouldn't be surprised, but our listeners might be surprised to find out, or they probably already know, but the number of people that work and run grain elevators that are also on school boards. Yeah. There is a huge number of them. And I mean, that just goes back to the, our industry, our people are very closely tied to their communities and, you know, the community, you've got your family, but the community helps the family and it's just given back. Yeah. School boards, volunteer fire departments, local, oh, yeah. lo local small town government. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's a, it's a huge percentage of people in, in the grain business that are involved in something like that or other community type of things, certainly very involved in churches and, and, uh, various kinds of community service it's it's unbelievable i i don't i live in a, a bigger town type of environment not a huge by any means but larger and, and it's it's hard to feel connected to the community or the government or anything else but i it's it's always stood out to me that people are our customers and i'm sure not just our customers but people in the grain business in general are tremendously community minded yeah well and and i learned from my dad um my dad was on the school board he was on the church board he was he was on the the uh golf course board of directors and, mm. and a funny little story on when he was in the hospital right before he passed away he'd been asleep for a while and he wakes up he says you don't listen worth a crap <laughs> and i looked at him i said what he said you don't listen worth a crap I said what are you talking about and he said you know i told you there are three things that i don't want to see you do I don't want to see you run for school board. I don't want to see you run for the church board. I don't want to see you on the NVRA board. That's the golf course board. He says, and you've done all three. <laughs> <laughs> I said, nope, I learned from you. I said, we got to do our work, right? He goes, yep, that's right. So yeah, that's kind of a funny. It's uh, we, we are who our parents make us, you know? Boy, that's true. That's true. I'm thankful every day for my parents and my wife's parents who... Um, weren't perfect by any means, but were very sacrificial and purposeful in raising us and and not turning us into monsters. <laughs> so I'm very grateful yeah. for that. It's well, true. And you you can't escape it. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I probably probably once a day 
or close to it, I open my mouth and I say, I hear my dad, or whatever, oh. whatever the content, the, the affectation or, you know, the, the rhythm, the delivery, all of it just is exactly him. It's yeah. Really something. Um, I've, I've had the opportunity or misfortune. We, we've had some family members leave us, um, not close family members, but like cousins and things here. Yeah. Good friends. And I've gotten to see some people that I haven't seen for years. And it, I've had so many people come up to me and say, you are your dad. The way you talk. Yeah. The way, the way you laugh, he said, you are your dad. And, and I always say, thank you. Um, that I, I've always tried to hope that I could get to a point where I could be half as good as he was. And I keep trying every day, but you know, I, I do want to say one thing though, um, Phil, that in 32 years of working for white commercial now, um, that there is one hero that needs to be mentioned in this. We've, I've alluded to her a few times, but my, my real hero in life is my wife. Sure. Um, the amount of time that we spend on the road um, through all this. And then, and then when I am home going umpiring games or, or school board meetings, um, I mean, I, I always tell people my wife did a fantastic job raising our kids and I helped out a little bit. Um, it, it, it's just true. And I mean, our, our, my wife's my hero. She is every day. Um, and she's got to have the patience of everybody in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Although after I, I will say this one funny story on Peggy is, is uh, after COVID um, and and we'd spent six months together, I think it was. And I hadn't gone anywhere. And after, I don't know what it was at the time, probably 20, 29 years or something like that of me being gone all the time. Um, for the first time ever, she helped me pack my bag. Um, <laughs> I told her I, I was going to go out. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I really appreciate this, but I just assumed you didn't have such a big smile on your face. <laughs> but no, I, you know, someday the day will come when Peggy will stop teaching. And, and at that point, I might think about slowing down a little bit um, for my job. But she's also warned me that she's going to need at least a year or two to get used to retirement herself before she lets me join the fun. So, <laughs> well, which, that's which that's is about four we, years off, probably. I so. say that that's that's an event we will uh, we'll be examining very closely around here, and maybe <laughs> maybe trying to trying to push her off a little bit. Well, we do have, by the way, we do have a retirement date for Peggy. It's in two years. Okay, she's going to teach two more years which means that at a minimum, according to her, we have four more years, Phil. So okay. we're, we're good for four and we'll see you after that. How about that? Well, well, we'll take what we can get for sure. So in all that time on the road, I, I was thinking that you've probably been in as many grain elevator offices as any one person in the United States. Uh, I don't know who, who would have been in any more. I don't think the auditors have been in any more and certainly not in the the uh, span of geography that you have, you've been in a whole bunch of grain elevator offices over a whole bunch of years. And I'm curious uh, if, if, if you tell me if this is a good question or not, but I, you walk into a place and would you say over that time that you've developed a sense of green flags and red flags, let's say for, for lack of a better term, if you, can you um, walk into a place and in five minutes say, Oh, this is a, this, this place is on the ball and, or this place has some problems. And what, what does that look like? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I have this thing and I, I don't know if you and I've ever actually talked about this before. Maybe we have in one of our trips together, but um, whenever I would have meetings scheduled with people, I would try and be at least 15 minutes early hoping that they, the person I was there to see would be busy and I could just sit around and watch. Yeah. I, I would say, I don't know, 
five minutes, that's probably, it's probably more like if you can give me 10 or 15 minutes, I usually have a pretty good idea about what's up And it. Have I been wrong? hundred percent. Yes, I have. I have been wrong at times. I've been fooled. Um, the, if there is a tendency in that area, it's that I think things are really good. And then the more I dig, the more I find out there's some real issues, but generally if something's it is bad, you can usually get a sense for it right off the bat. Something's out of whack. And it's usually how they act and talk to their customers. There's just something there that it, it, I can't really put a, a descriptor on it. It just doesn't feel right. Um, that you can see there's some issues there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's over the years, you kind of get a sense for what's, you get a feel for things. Then getting a feel for the people probably as much as anything. Sure. What's the, um, let's see how to ask this. What, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you in a grain elevator yard or office? The weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in an elevator. Um, wow, this has been, this would have been maybe in the first year or two I was working for white. I got an appointment to go meet with this guy that was in Missouri. I can't even remember the name of the town. All I remember was I had, and these are his words, not mine, go through the drive-through. Okay. And I said, drive-through. He goes, yeah. He says, you're going to come to a creek and you go through the drive-through. We haven't had any rain for a while, so it'll be okay. The drive-through was they'd put a concrete ramp that went down through the creek. Oh, wow. You had to drive through the creek and go <laughs> up the other side to get to the elevator. Okay. <laughs> and okay. and so we're sitting down and he says, I, I think you guys need to help me um learn this hedging stuff. And I said, Okay, well, let's let's look for a minute. Let's let's just check on a few things here. Do you have a copy of your DPR? And he goes, What's that? Hmm. He says, the thing you use to keep track of for the state. Oh, I don't let those guys in here. <laughs> okay. And I said, well, how do you keep track of things? He goes, they're right over there. And he points at these shelves of these shoe boxes mm. that have scale tickets in it. No other paper. He wow. says, he says, there's rubber bands. He says the one with two rubber bands on them have been paid. The one with one rubber band hasn't. That's probably the weirdest thing that's ever, ever run into. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Probably. Um, one of the first places I learned that there always has to be a quick exit strategy when you need one. And I did not have one that day. And I swore to myself that I would always be prepared after that. Um, I had to get out of that one pretty. They are not a customer now, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what happened when the creek was up a little bit. I guess you just couldn't go, huh? Well, I don't know. And I don't know if the creek had something to do with why the state never found out about them. <laughs> Could be. I don't know, but that's that's probably the weirdest. But yeah, there's been some. I, I man, I'll tell you what. The funnest part of our job is is. I I someday I need to sit down and actually count up how many different states I've been in grain elevators in because it's a it's got to be thirty, and provinces and provinces, and you know everybody always asks me where's your favorite place to go, and it's like. All of them. And I mean that. I love them all. I, I've never I've never made a grain elevator I didn't like. Um that they, they're just different. Each one is different, each one's unique. They have their own personalities. And and yeah. man, it's just the people are great. Um, I don't have a favorite state. I don't, I mean. It's just it's just cool getting to go around all these different places. They're just all different. And it's just it's what makes our job fun. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And um, that we're probably I think we could go on and on here and I'd like to do it, but I don't know if people will keep on <laughs> listening. So uh, I will say 
1995 or 96, somewhere around there, um, somebody threw me in your lap and I don't know if you had any say in that or not, <laughs> if it just happened, but. Okay. Uh, let I, me stop you right there. Um, all right. Okay. You, you know, the people that were in charge then, right? Yeah, I sure do. What would you guess be? I'm going to guess you didn't have a lot of vote. (laughs) (laughs) um, Go forth and do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Uh, no vote, but I was very lucky to meet that young guy. I think about it a lot. And uh, certainly that was a a strong introduction to a whole bunch, just what you said, all these different people and personalities in the grain business and, and all these wonderful individuals who are, so tied to their communities and so good at what they do. And, um, you know, I think you bailed me out more than once in front of a room full of people when I, when I spoke with the, uh, unearned confidence of youth. So I appreciate that. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I, this wouldn't have worked out how it did if, if you didn't mentor me right there at the beginning. So I, I can't appreciate you enough and thank you enough for that. No, it was life-changing. So it was, it was, <laughs> It was my pleasure. I never had any doubts, by the way. I, I knew you would be fine. Um, it it just, you know, growth is a hard thing, right? Now you may have been the only one who thought that. <laughs> no, I, I always thought you would. I always thought you would be fine. I really, truly did. I, I never had any doubt. Well, with, with uh, plenty of help from you, I, I managed to figure it out. So I appreciate it very much. Thanks for the stories. Thanks for the wisdom. Thanks for everything you do. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, watch you do it for at least four more years and see if we can't squeeze a few more out after that we'll do our best how about that sounds awesome thanks a million we'll see you soon